I think what's mean is a system that has 6.5 million Americans paying $3 billion in taxes or penalties in order so that they have the right not to purchase health coverage. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. In today's show, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price talks about efforts in Washington to repeal and replace Obamacare. The former orthopedic surgeon also describes what it's like to work with President Trump. His conversation with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, coming up. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. After many setbacks, a possible vote to overhaul the Affordable Care Act is back on the table. President Trump urged senators this week to pass a bill that repeals and replaces the ACA. In late June, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price spoke on stage about why he thinks Obamacare doesn't work. He gives alternatives to the law he thinks are better. He also talks about President Trump's leadership style, the opioid crisis, and proposed cuts to agencies like the National Institutes of Health. Here's his conversation with Editor-in-Chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg. They spoke at Spotlight Health. Good morning, everyone. Um, and thank you all for being here. Uh, and Secretary Price, thank you very much uh, for being here on behalf of uh, the Aspen Institute, Spotlight Health, The Atlantic, all the underwriters. I want to welcome you to the People's Republic of Aspen. Uh, and, I'm honored to be here. And, and uh, in all seriousness, we're, we're, uh, we're glad that, that you're here and we're glad that you're uh, willing and happy to answer questions about all of the various issues, controversies that you're, you're grappling with right now. Um, I want to start with... Uh, I want to start with issues that are right now smack in the middle of the news um, and want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the House plan and the Senate plan and Trump care itself, and, uh, your, own, uh, your own ideas uh, concerning health care. Uh, a few weeks ago, Donald Trump celebrated the, the House version uh, of this bill, and, and so did you. You called it a victory for the American people. Later on, the president called the House bill that he was celebrating, quote, mean. Um, so my, my question to you is, do you agree with the president that the bill that, the, the ideas that he was celebrating are mean, and is the Senate version of this not mean, less mean? How do you, how do you calibrate this on the, on, the, on the scale, and this is a serious question, the, 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 the continuum that, that Donald Trump suggested he's judging this on? That's the easy question, right? That's the easy one. Um. First, let me, let me thank uh, the Aspen Institute and, and Spotlight Health uh, for the uh, opportunity and the invitation to, to join you today. Um, uh, it's always an incredibly important um, time when we get together and exchange ideas, and so I sincerely thank you uh, for that. Um, and, and I think when, when we're talking about healthcare uh, and, and parachuting into a question like that, it's important to, to, to look at where, where we are. Um, the system that we have right now is not really one system, it's five or six systems. Uh, so you've got Medicare uh, for seniors, you've got Medicaid for low income and, and, and uh, disabled uh, folks. Uh, you've got the, the um, employer-sponsored system where most folks get their coverage, about 175 million. Uh, then you've got the VA health system, the Indian Health Service, um, and then the, the individual and small group market, which is where the focus of, of the ACA was. 
uh, and it's where the focus of where the challenges are right now, with premiums being uh, significantly uh, increasing, over 100% uh, on average, some states uh, uh, tripling. Uh, you've got deductibles that are, that are uh, through the roof where folks have an insurance card, but they don't have any care because they can't afford the deductible. So when, when, when you look at, at uh, uh, the solutions that have been offered, uh, both in the House and in the Senate, both of those solutions attempt to get at those challenges, to try to increase the ability for folks in the individual and small group market to gain the coverage that they want for themselves and for, th for their family, not that the government forces them to buy, to put in place a Medicaid system that is actually more responsive to individuals and allows greater flexibility for, uh, for the states so, so that they can respond to their, uh, their, their Medicaid population, and to do so in a way that makes it so that it's financially and fiscally feasible. Uh, oh, by the way, we're $20 trillion in debt. So you've got to have a system that's actually going to work and survive, and that's what the two bills are trying to do. So um, I, I, I wouldn't put it in the context that, that, that the question framed it, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy Well, I mean, to... I want you to answer the question. You work for Donald Trump. He did, no, he, he did say it was mean. So, I mean, what is that? What, do you agree with him that what the House proposed was, was mean? I think what's mean is a system that has 6.5 million Americans paying $3 billion dollars, in taxes or penalties in order so that they have the right not to purchase health coverage. But That's would, a mean system that may work for government, but, but, but it doesn't work for patients. But, so you, but you have a situation, let's put the CBO score aside on the house, which says that anywhere 16 to 23 million people could lose health insurance if this is passed. But you have the American Medical Association, which you're a member of, coming out and basically, in so many words, saying it's mean. A lot of other organizations, American Hospital Association, saying it's, it's mean. So I guess, I guess we're just sort of judging meanness. You know, is it, is it who, who is suffering, a person who's going to lose Medicaid access or the taxpayer who you say is being afflicted by having to pay for a plan that he's not using? Well, it's not only that. It's small businesses who, who can't expand, can't, uh, can't hire employees because of the, of the constraints uh, of the ACA. Uh, it's individuals who no longer can provide health coverage for their employees because of, of, of the current rules. So no system is ideal. The goals that we have as an administration, the goals that the president have, has, has laid out, is that we need a system that, as he says, has heart. Uh, and, and, and for him, that, that means making certain that every single American has access to the kind of coverage right. that they want, not that the government forces them to buy, that makes certain that pre-existing illnesses and injuries are covered, that there's a transition phase to any new plan that makes it so that nobody falls through the cracks that we're not pulling the rug out from under anybody, and so that, hopefully, there are more individuals who are insured under the new plan than are currently insured, remembering that 28 million Americans currently are uninsured. Okay, but I'm just, I'm just having one problem with, you know, you have the CBO score. CBO is nonpartisan. Uh, we don't have a CBO score yet on the Senate. But CBO tells us that millions of people will lose access to health insurance. Is the CBO wrong? Yes. Why is the CBO wrong? Because the CBO does a great job, by and large, on how much something costs, budget, that's what they do well. They do a relatively poor job on, on, on what the coverage consequences of a health plan are. And just by an example, they, CBO, in, in, when, uh, when the ACA was passed, said that this year there would be 23 million individuals covered under the ACA in the individual small group market. There are about 10. They're about 10 million. So the, the fact of the matter is that, that their ability, anybody's ability, frankly, to kind of predict what human behavior is going to be without looking at the entire construct is, is, is difficult. So I would suggest to you that the, that the numbers that the CBO had before with the ACA, and we, I said that at the time, and the numbers that they put forward now are not accurate. So are, are you willing to say here right, right now that if 
there's some version of the House-Senate combined bill, goes to the President, signs it, uh, Obamacare is out. Uh, that, are you prepared to say that no one on Medicaid, mental health patient, a person in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, no one is going to fall through the cracks, no one is going to be kicked out of their nursing home because Medicaid won't cover? That is the goal of the plan, is to make certain that, you, any, any, that any transition from Medicaid to the individual market, from Medicaid to the employer-sponsored market, from Medicaid to Medicare, and the other ways that nobody falls through those cracks, that that is a seamless transition. That doesn't occur right now, uh, but that's the goal of the, of the plan. But you can't guarantee it. Okay. Would, the, would the president okay. guarantee? I mean, the, the, president the, the, the president guaranteed. The, the previous president guaranteed that premiums were going to go down. In fact, they've gone up by three thousand bucks. The president guaranteed that you could keep your plan. In uh, fact, you couldn't keep your plan. So there are no guarantees in life, Jeff. You know that. No, there, there. There's a guarantee that you come to Aspen and said you get free food. That's the guarantee. <laughs> that's the only guarantee that I. That's the only. I, that's the only guarantee. I got that here I know. late. We're leaving but, early, uh, so I'll but, have to come uh, back. I want to come back to the issue of. Um, I want to come back to the issue of premiums in it, but I want to read you a tweet from Mike Pence, something that he, he wrote yesterday. Quote: Before summer's out, we'll repeal, replace Obamacare with a system based on personal responsibility, free market competition, and state-based reform. I, I read that in the context of 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 hearing concerns on the part of patient advocacy groups, patients and families themselves, of old people in nursing homes with Alzheimer's. And I'm wondering where personal responsibility fits into this, into this category. I, I don't, can you explain, when, when your administration talks about the role of personal responsibility in, in formulating this, where, where, I can understand, in, you're an orthopedist, and we're sure. gonna talk about orthopedic surgery in a minute. Drunk idiot jumps off a roof, breaks his legs. Um, there's some personal responsibility issues there, but you as a doctor still have to fix him. You're obligated to fix So what we, is this? We as a society are obligated. Okay, so what is personal responsibility in this? When, you, when, you're talking about, when you're talking about Medicaid covering millions of people in nursing homes, what are we talking about here? Well, that's where you have to think about the five or six systems that we have. Uh, an individual who is the individual that, that, that you described, uh, who through no fault of their own has fallen on, on in, into a situation either through a diagnosis or, 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 uh, uh, or situation where they're not able to care for themselves, they're not able to make these decisions. Uh, this is a compassionate society and we, we owe it to those individuals in our society to care for them. Uh, nobody's talking about booting somebody out of the nursing home who has Alzheimer's and the, and, and the, the array of comorbidities that you, that you described. That's not what the system is that we envision. What we do envision, however, is that individuals ought to be able to have the freedom, the right, the privilege to be able to purchase the kind of coverage that they want for themselves and for their family, not that the government forces them to buy, because that's how you get a system that is responsive to patients. may not be responsive to government, but it's responsive to patients. Right. So the, the, the Senate bill, the Senate bill offers states the opportunity to drop some of the requirements of the ACA, or the Affordable Care, Obamacare, um, including uh, maternity coverage and emergency service. So um, my, my question to you as, as, a, as a health professional um, and as someone who uh, says he wants all Americans covered adequately, what, what would cause you personally not to support the Senate version? I, I think that, that if, if we're looking at the principles of health care, we want a system, and it's probably true for everybody in this room, we want a system that's affordable for everybody, we want a system that's accessible for everybody, we want a system that's of the highest quality, we want a system that incentivizes innovation, and we want a system that empowers patients through accountability, transparency, and, and choices. So if you look at those principles, and, and I, I think most everybody has those principles, the question is how do you get there? My sense is that the Senate bill gets us closer to, to fulfilling those principles than current law. So if I felt that the Senate bill 
moved us away from those principles compared to current law, then I wouldn't be able to be supportive. But I happen to believe, and I think it's true, that the, that the Senate bill, combined with the kinds of things that we're able to do at the Department of Health and Human Services, put, would put in place a plan and a construct that would be much more responsive to individuals, increasing quality, increasing accessibility, increasing affordability, and certainly increasing uh, the incentivization for innovation and choices. Is healthcare a privilege or a right? It, it, healthcare is something that, uh, that, that every single person in this nation needs to have access to. And the society itself has to determine how, how that works. Uh, my grandfather graduated from medical school in 1908, uh, when, a long time ago. Uh, when he cared for individuals, he cared for everybody that came through, came through the door, regardless of, of their insurance status. I graduated from medical school in 1979. In my 20 plus years of practice, I cared for every single person that came through that door, regardless of whether they had insurance. So a society Did has Did you take to, Medicaid? Absolutely. So a society has to, uh, among itself, have that conversation about what the public policy is. Uh, there are consequences to every single decision that you, that you make in, in, that, in that construct. Uh, if you view it as the role of government to provide health care for everybody, that's a way that, 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 that you can move. But there are consequences to that that, frankly, I believe violate those principles that I suspect we all hold dear. Decreasing quality, decreasing affordability, decreasing choices for individuals. Uh, so uh, that, that if you have a system that, that, that more fully respects individuals and fully respects the kind of society that we've, that we've been accustomed to, that is one that allows individuals to be the people that are choosing what kind of coverage they have, then you move in the direction of, uh, of where we're trying to get. I, I want to I hit a whole bunch of other things, including the opioid epidemic yeah. and NIH, but I want to stay with this for one minute, because I've, I've been thinking about this for, for, for a long time now. I, I, I was meeting once with Julia Gillard, who is the ex-Prime Minister mm -hmm. of, of Australia, and, and we were she's, a, like most Australians, big fan of America. Um, and, uh, and said that this, her, her one critique of America was that, was, a, was that she noticed a level of desperation on the part of, of people that people in Australia didn't feel. And that desperation was related mainly to, to health care. Um, and she brought up, I'll never forget, she brought up the, the idea that in Australia, people are shocked that in America, people have to have car washes to raise money for transplants or bake sales and that sort of thing. And she said, and said we, we, we don't under... We don't understand that. Our system doesn't allow for that. And so I, I, Australia has a pretty good healthcare system. So I, I, I'm asking this just as a layman sure. and as, as a consumer. Uh, why is there that level of desperation? Uh, and Obamacare didn't, didn't solve that level of desperation, obviously. Correct. Why do we have this desperation? Why does the employer-based healthcare system, why does Medicaid being only for people, uh, Medicare being only for people over 65? How do you fix that? And I assume you want to fix that. I assume you Absolutely. don't want your fellow citizens to be desperate and go ahead and to, and to experience medical bankruptcy, one, which is a uniquely American concept. One of the, one of the goals that, that, that I hope to be able to move in the direction of in whatever tenure I'm, I'm given the privilege of leading this department uh, is to restore part of the trust that I believe has been lost between the, the, the electorate, between the citizens of this nation, especially the physicians of this nation, and their federal government when it comes to health care. Uh, because that, if, if there's no trust, then you, don't, then, then you can't have confidence that the decisions that are being made in, in, in the federal government are going to be helpful to the American people. Uh, I think that the core of, of, of the answer to your question uh, is that we don't have a system of health care. 
We have systems of healthcare that oftentimes don't speak to each other, that don't, that don't, uh, that don't communicate, that don't work in concert with, with each other. Um, that, uh, that, that if, if we have a system right now that if you were to design, if you were to take a clean piece of paper and to design a healthcare system, it wouldn't look anything like the system that we've got. Uh, so the goal is to get to a point where that seamless transition between those systems is possible for individuals so that nobody loses the opportunity to have that coverage. Let, let me ask you a, a, another question um, on, a, on a related subject. At the, um, the famous cabinet meeting of June 12th, the famous televised cabinet meeting, you're all arrayed around the table. Um, when it was your turn to speak, no, this is a serious question. When it was your turn to speak, you, um, you reported to the president that you had just returned from Europe from a pair of, of global health summits, and, and you, you told him that, um, that, that folks, uh, this is a quote, folks are enthusiastic about the U.S. role yes. in global health security. So I was curious about that. I've covered this issue in the past. I, I called a couple of people I know in Europe who, do, or, who, are, who, are, who deal with pandemic-related issues, CDC-style issues, and, and they reported to me that they're actually in a kind of cold panic because they saw the, the, the Trump budget um, cutting CDC funding, not only CDC funding that's based in ACA, um, but emergency, emergency preparedness funding, $100 million in emergency preparedness funding to, to combat future pandemics. So, uh, and the reason that they're in a panic is because they respect our system so much. Sure. CDC is the best agency in the world. They all know that the World Health Organization is not quite as useful, let's be fair, um, uh, as the CDC. So I'm not, I just want you to square that for me. You come back and tell the president, and maybe you're trying to signal to the president that this is important stuff. It was, uh, it was a remarkable trip. I went to Liberia uh, to, to go on the front lines of the folks who fought the Ebola crisis. Uh, and every single person in this room can be incredibly proud of the work that Americans did in concert with Liberians uh, to, to stem the tide there, the work that the CDC did and NIH and, 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 and HRSA. Uh, that, the, the, that, that was a devastating uh, um, crisis at that point, but it would not have ended the way it did in, in, in a positive way uh, without the United States and the global health security that, that So the why would States you cut the forward. CDC's budget? I then went to, to Berlin to the G20 Health Summit. We'll get there, we're gonna get there. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah, I guess we're gonna get there. To, I went to Berlin to the G20 Health Summit uh, to individual after individual where I, I openly and publicly uh, said that the United States is, is engaged in a very positive way on global health security and the global health security agenda. Then went to Geneva for the World Health Assembly where we elected a new Director General of the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Tedros from Ethiopia. Uh, and we've been working, uh, uh, working diligently with him. And each and every place, each and every place, uh, I was met with nothing but, but positive uh, feedback and, and, and reassurance from folks who said, we are so thrilled that the United States is being so forward-leaning on global health security and the importance of, uh, of the global health security. So they were praising agenda. President Obama for sending the army to Liberia. They were praising the United States right now. No, 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 I'm not. No, 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 no. That's a, I mean, li sure. the Liberian response was an Obama administration response to Ebola. Sure, look, that, 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 this isn't, this isn't um, one side or the other. The United States has an incredibly important role to play in terms of world health. Right. In fact, I believe we are the leader in, in positive activity in the world 
for not just global health security, right. but for the advancement of, 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 uh, of better health. I agree and, with you wholeheartedly, which is why I'm asking you, why would you cut the CDC budget when the CDC does such a good job as the global leader in prevention of pandemics? And the premise to that question is that the, the CDC budget right now, or any budget right now, is exactly where it ought to be, and there are no efficiencies that can be gained. And I would suggest to you that the budget, as you know, doesn't become law. Right. This is a first step in the process. The Congress has a big say in this process, and the conversation that we're having with the appropriators right now is a, is a robust conversation. Uh, but, but I would suggest to you that there are efficiencies that can be had, and we can actually bring more resources to the battle of uh, whether it's innovation, uh, whether it's NIH uh, um, uh, research and, 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 right. uh, and, and funding, whether it's CDC, whether it's global health security, the kinds of things that, that are an absolute priority for the United States right. and for the president. Well, let me, let me stay on this for a while. Let me stay on the Ebola issue yeah. because this is obviously uh, Ebola as a stand-in for a whole host of uh, problems that any administration might face in the course of, of four years. During the 2014 Ebola crisis, Donald Trump, then a private citizen, tweeted, quote, the U.S. cannot allow Ebola-infected people back. People that go to faraway places to help out are great, but must suffer the consequences. So, no, I, and, I, and I read that. I, 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 take them, I take this as his opinion. Um, but my question is, as his primary health advisor, as the leader of the CDC, um, when, and I use the word when, not if, when the next Ebola crisis or Ebola-type crisis erupts, um, will you recommend to the president that you allow American aid workers who have been infected by the disease to come back to America for treatment? It's, it, it, it's not only our uh, responsibility, it, it, it's, a, it's a moral action that must be taken. You, we cannot uh, ask individuals to do the kinds of things. When, when I was in Liberia and, and, and in, the, uh, in, in West Point, in the area where, where, where uh, Ebola hit so incredibly uh, uh, difficultly on that on West that Point, that neighborhood in that Monrovia. 85,000 yeah, yeah. uh, uh, individuals. Virtually no running water, virtually no electricity. These folks, uh, you talk about folks who are thrilled that the United States engaged. That's a community that's thrilled that the United States engaged. And I spoke and, and hugged Ebola survivors uh, and thanked the, the, the doctors the, the, that were there, the healthcare workers that were there. Uh, absolutely, this, this, this is an, a, 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 a responsibility of the United States. And I believe it's a responsibility that we, that we are uniquely able to fulfill uh, in, in, in the world community. Before I go to the other subjects, go to, Tell me, tell us something, because obviously there's a lot of concern and consternation about Donald Trump's preparedness and his thinking on issues like this, thinking that he, he, he shared with the public as a private citizen. Uh, I'm very curious, you're in these cabinet meetings, you're meeting with him frequently. Um, tell us something that we don't understand about Donald Trump that might make people who worry about his preparedness for the job feel better about his leadership. Sure. Uh, and I, I've, been, uh, I've been incredibly impressed with his inquisitiveness, uh, with his piercing questions. Uh, he's got a great intellect. Uh, he is engaging uh, on, on, on the issues um, and, uh, and, and, I, and has, a, has a warmth about him from a heart standpoint for the nation um, that, uh, uh, that I think is impressive. Um, but I will tell you that, that when we have these conversations, uh, on, on the difficult challenges that, that, that exist. Um, he fully understands and appreciates that the role of the United States is, uh, is uh, imperative in the world. As a global leader. Yes. As a global leader. Um, come to one question on NIH, and then we'll go to the opioids and your agenda. Uh, on NIH, it's a, it's a related question to the CDC question. Sure. 
universally recognized the United States government runs the biggest and best biomedical research complex in the world. You're a physician. I cannot square in my mind why you would endorse a budget that cuts funding to NIH, including the indirect sure. cost and overhead question related to universities and their own laboratories. Can you address that? Yeah, drill, drill down in the budget. Uh, there's a graph in the budget, and, and, and I would encourage folks to look at it, because the premise of the budget that was put forward is that the indirect costs can be decreased by such an amount that brings it in line with what the private sector pays for indirect costs that allows for more money to go for research. Now, you can believe that premise or not, but that's the premise of, of the budget, and that's the first step in this process. Again, the budget doesn't become law. The president's budget doesn't become law, no. where we have this conversation with the appropriators in the House and the Senate and determine exactly where that ought to be. So the no, NIH no, is, no research will be affected. The, the NIH is an indispensable institution for the, not just the United States, for the world. The, the, the kinds of things that the NIH does is, is, is not done anywhere else in the world where it, where it is the germination of, of these uh, one incredible ideas. And, I, and when we get to the priorities, there are some incredible things that are being done about the opioid crisis and about the, uh, the, the effect or the, what the NIH is, 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 is potentially able to do. Talk about opioids because this, this, I mean, you're actually in an interesting and, and nuanced position to talk about opioids. As a surgeon, you prescribed opioids, mm -hmm. I assume fairly regularly. Uh, Talk about the, the, what has caused this crisis. We're looking at tens of thousands of deaths yeah. a year. Um, and again, within the framework, if you can, of Trump proposed budget cuts, how you're going to combat this spreading crisis. Yeah, boy, a lot in there. Um, they, the, the opioid crisis, when I, came, uh, when I was sworn in, I've raised three specific clinical priorities for the department over, over my term. Uh, childhood obesity, severe mental illness, and the opioid crisis. Uh, and I did so because we're losing on every single one of those scores, and I believe we ought to be winning. The opioid crisis is a scourge that's across this land, and, and, and every single person in this room, I suspect, knows somebody who's been affected by it. 52,000 Americans died of an overdose in 2015, and that's only because we don't have the numbers for 2016, and it's probably closer to 60,000, and the numbers this year aren't looking any better. So we've got to do all sorts of things to figure out why that is, what the public health issue is there, why is that, why, why is the hopelessness there, why is the, the, the addiction there, what are we doing wrong, how are we going to treat that, make certain that we prevent the, the treatment and recovery side. Uh, the, the, we've got a five-point strategy that includes making certain that every community in this land has the ability to have the overdose-reversing drug, Narcan, Naloxone, in, wherever it needs to be, wherever it can be, so that we, so that we save these lives. Uh, looking at NIH, the kind of, 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 uh, of research that needs to be done to not just bring about non-euphoric pain medication, pain medication that's, that, that's non-addictive, but they're working on, these folks are so, so incredibly brilliant, they're working on, imagine this, get your mind around this one, a vaccine against addiction, a vaccine that would prevent addiction. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's hard for me to, 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 to comprehend. And then finally, how do we treat pain, which gets to your issue of, of physicians and, and, and pain treatment. And let me suggest to you that we got off track about 20 years ago as a society when we began uh, um, treating pain as a fifth vital sign. 
There was a whole movement that came about that said pain is a fifth vital sign. And so I, I, was, I was an actively practicing physician then, an orthopedic surgeon. And, and my colleagues and I looked, looked at this missive that came from, from Washington, D.C. and said, now you've got to make certain that you record pain as a fifth vital sign. And you just shook your head and said, what on earth is this? What, what are these folks thinking about? Pain, a symptom as a vital sign? That's like saying nausea is a vital sign. Vital signs are pulse, blood pressure, temperature, uh, the, uh, weight, the kinds of things that are objective, and to, and to say that pain is a fifth vital sign. And then what the federal government did is say, we're not only going to say it's a fifth vital sign, we're going we're to reward doctors who make certain that patients aren't in pain. Now, everybody wants patients not to be in pain. But to incentivize physicians from a remuneration standpoint, to, to make it so that patients don't have pain and give that smiley face on that survey is abhorrent to the practice of medicine. So uh, we, we've got, we, uh, I'm excited about this. Can you no, tell? No, no, I, I, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's Washington, D.C. telling doctors what they ought to do, and that's wrong. We need to make certain that we're addressing pain, yes, but we ought not get Washington, D.C. telling doctors what they ought to do. I live in Washington, D.C. I never said a word. But, uh, <laughs> no, 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 it's interesting. You, you, in, the, in the couple of minutes that we have left, what specific measures are you going to take this year? Is this administration yeah. going to take this year? So let me to... talk about the money. Because two years ago, the federal government spent 200 and about $245 million on the opioid crisis. In President, Obama, in President Trump's budget, $811 million. But you are or, zeroing out national drug control policy. No, ONDCP was bumped back up. So that, and, and that's the give and take that this president enjoys, is, 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 is to see where people's passions are, see where the, where, where the ideas are. Um, so $811 million uh, for, for, uh, for the opioid crisis. And I believe that there's more to come. And not because money solves the problem, but, but for us to be able to do the five-point strategy that I identified, it's going to take more resources than we currently have. The president has appointed a commission chaired by Governor Christie from, from New Jersey, bipartisan commission uh, on the opioid crisis. Uh, there's an internal working group that is, that is uh, actively involved uh, in, in this, and I believe the president is passionate about this. He heard stories from, from uh, moms and dads and brothers and sisters across this land about what, what this scourge was, was wreaking uh, uh, to, to families. It's destroying lives, destroying families, destroying communities. He is absolutely intent on solving this problem. Dr. Price, we can go on all day, but we can't. Um, so I want to thank you very much thank for you, coming Jeff. and thank Appreciate you for everybody being here. Thank you. Thank you. Tom Price leads the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Previously, he represented Georgia's 6th Congressional District in the U.S. House. Price also worked as an orthopedic surgeon for two decades. Jeffrey Goldberg is an award-winning journalist who has interviewed several high-profile figures and heads of state. He's the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.